Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Wakafa, Mossola, Tuasalam, Wala, Melana, Bia Bada, Wabad. Alhamdulillah, I wanted to start firstly by welcoming everyone to this Tafsir course. There has been a lot that's gone into preparing this. And it is my hope that by opening this up to a much larger gathering than we had with the Sira, that people will find benefit in it on a wider scale. The Sira had been kept to a very strict tuition program because I wanted to focus one year on going through the Sira of Ibn Hisham and distill that into a tiny pocket of people. With tafsir, this is the very understanding of the speech of Allah that sits on the highest shelf in everyone's house, is what was given to the Prophet Muhammad It is the book that we say is the speech of Allah. Because of that, I wanted this to be as wide as possible. For those that have been well-wishers to us, either in du'as or other ways, I ask that Allah rewards those doers of righteousness, anonymous though they may be. I ask that Allah blesses them. Because there's a lot that goes into preparing classes, a lot that goes into getting things ready, and a lot that goes into logistics and planning. The intention that I had in beginning this was to give Muslims a high standard of education in the topics of the seerah, of tafsir, and other areas. It was my great desire to do so. I saw that there was a fissure, a crack in the education of Muslims in the English language. And it was my desire and the desire of other brothers to fill that yawning void. It's our hope that if Allah has accepted this endeavor from us, we've at least helped to put some of the cement on the wall, if not all of it. I want to mention what you should expect from me. Because by expecting this from the expectations that you have a right to consider from us are paramount. The student in this course can expect from us that we will endeavor to provide the following. Professional teaching. Any teacher, any topic has to have the utmost put into it. Any teacher must put their utmost into it. Preparation, elucidation, inspiration all have a place in the classroom. The principle of teaching effectively is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. You have to put in the time. A safe environment. So the classes that we are doing, the durus that we are doing, threatening violence, behavior, or postures will not be accepted, and students who engage in this will be removed. Alhamdulillah, I've not had to deal with any of this yet, and it's not my intent that I should. A tranquil environment, students should be able to learn without distractions, the most obvious being mobile phones. This is why they are to be switched off or on silent before the beginning of class time. There will only be two verbal warnings, after which time that student may be asked not to come. 
Others must not suffer for one person's bad manners, and the speech of Allah must not be disrespected. To put this further in your minds, can you imagine in this class at one point hearing the recitation of an ayah from Allah's book and the alim elucidating that ayah and someone's mobile phone goes off? Can you imagine how, not just breaking the spirit of it, but how disrespectful that would be? Why the kuffar said to their allies when they used to hear the Qur'an being recited, raise your voices and make noise above it so that you might prevail. Don't fall into the category of someone doing one of those actions. A thorough treatment of the subject. As with any topic, any important topic, students deserve that they should be given the best teaching possible under the best circumstances. If we're not confident and pleased to teach it, we will not teach it. So I don't teach any topic unless, number one, I'm confident to teach it, and number two, I'm prepared to teach it. I don't have it as a pattern, and I don't have it as a habit that I teach something that I'm not sure about, or that I might be sure or slightly sure or wavering about. I do my utmost to teach what I know and what I can do. And then presentation and review to make remembering easy. The key to keeping something in the mind is to review. So positive reinforcement with handouts, maps, and presentations is crucial. Let there be no mistake about that. So the key to learning, the key to remembering what you've learned is through those methods. How else could you have remembered your own name except the fact that when you were very small, you repeatedly kept having a series of syllables spoken to you and somehow made the link that that's actually your name. After that, you were taught a series of numbers and told that this is your national insurance number, or this is your social security card number, and you remembered those, those numbers. You remember the telephone number to your house, the address of your house, the names of your children. Why? Through rote, through memory, through reinforcement, through consideration, through reflection. That's how you remember things. Now, what we expect from you. What we expect from you. So I've tried to hold myself to a very high standard, and in turn, you as well shall be subjected to the same standard. Students should be ready to work and be punctual. I know the traffic has to be negotiated, but I'm saying as much as possible to be punctual. If you're going to be late, don't make a scene of yourself coming in. But if this is a constant issue, you need to reflect on how serious you are about tefsir. I know traffic needs to be navigated. I know things happen. But if you as a consistent person are always known of as being late, you have to ask yourself how serious you are about this. You need to be prepared. Your folders will often have handouts and you must also be mentally prepared to learn. Keep your mobile switched off or on silent. You say, well, he's repeated it twice. Yes, because repetition is good so that those who remember may remember. The class is not the street or the outside environment. Is the class or the phone more important? You must decide. For the course layout, Allah has given us the ability to begin this project and success has come through him alone. The structure of how I want to do this class is the following. A piecemeal section of tafsir, roughly 18 pages, will be covered every week 
which may include handouts, presentations, notes, or all of the above depending upon the need. So I don't say that every single week you will have handouts or a handout. But what I say is every single week you may hear something that you might want to write down. You may hear something that you might find beneficial that you might jot down on the margins of your notes. So it is important that you are prepared, which is why I've tried to give everyone a folder and a pencil or pen. So that way they have it for their own writing implement because it's important. This knowledge is important. There will be no pop quizzes and review drills for the materials. I say this because the way that we did the CIRA was very intensive and I was quite demanding as any teacher should be, obviously. But it was the most difficult. Some people said that it was more difficult than university because of the way that we treated this knowledge. And it should be treated to a higher standard than university. There will be no trick questions. If you choose not to understand the speech of a law, the burden of proof is upon you and you cannot blame anyone else. I don't want you to blame your parents. I don't want you to blame your neighbors. I don't want you to blame the wider Kaffir society. I don't want you to blame white people. I don't want you to blame anyone else but yourself. If you fail to understand the speech of Allah and activate it in your own life because it was revealed one time infallibly and handed down unbroken infallibly to us. So I don't want you to blame anyone but yourself. If you fall short because of your own curmudgeonry, because of your own laziness, because of your own trepidation, because of your own internal weakness, because of your own frailties, and because of your own obsequies. I don't want you to blame anyone else but the one who you stare at in the mirror every day when you wash your face when you get up from bed. Blame that one. But be ready. Each Tefsir course will be three months, and there will be four of these three-month courses. It will take one year complete to complete the entire course, or at least, at the very least, nine months depending upon the, the amount of material covered. So if we're looking at Zadul Masir, Fi Ilm tafsir I am optimistic that we could complete it in nine months. But I'm also realistic. And that I know that it's possible that the amount of material is so great that it may take more than nine months. I am optimistic for nine months, but I'm also realistic if it takes more than that. And I will tell you, as we approach the uh, near halfway point, how we're doing. And then you'll know what to expect. After the end of each three-month course, there will be feedback sheets given. These will ensure that the classes are of the best quality. As I've said, I was held to a very high standard in seminary, and I was told to hold other people to a high standard. So I want to know how we're doing with the layout, the atmosphere, the ambiance, too hot, too cold, not enough handouts, not this, not that. I want to know about these affairs because they have to do with and are connected with the presentation of the class, the presentation of this knowledge to you. And this knowledge is true knowledge. The ulama did not consider the knowledge that was learned regarding, say, medicine or biology by itself as ilm. That's spin-off knowledge from the original divine knowledge. So it's not knowledge in and of itself. This is the real knowledge. And because this is the real knowledge, you have to by yourselves 
Let me know what I can do to help you reach your best potential. You have to let me know. If everything's fine, then let us know. If there's, well, it would be good if we did this. It would be good if we did that. You have to let me know so I can help you realize that potential. There's no point saying, well, I won't say anything because what's the point? No one listens to me. Well, then subhanAllah, nothing will get solved. When you have questions, when you have questions, if you should have any questions about the Tefsir course, they can be directed to uh, the website, htspub at yahoo.co.uk. The address line should have the relevant Tefsir title within it. A sample has already been done for you at the back of your folder. I've not enclosed this at the back of your folder because generally I'm fairly aware that most of you will know how to do that. I think we've been cultured enough in the environment that you've been coming to where you don't need, need to do it anymore. You've, you have been cultured. You have been assimilated. Please do not use this for chain link emails, personal emails, or social commentary or debate. I do not want to receive emails that are connected in which I am told that I have to read a specific dua 40 times. And if I don't pass it on to 40 people, I will be sinful if I don't do it. I don't want to receive that. That is baltil. That's baseless. I don't want to receive emails that the former governor of Nigeria, Ifoso Odigizawa, has died and left me 12 million uh, British pounds and I only need to pay 960 to get it. I don't want to receive those things. I don't want to be part of those type of things. Use the emails with righteousness. If this is done, meaning these frivolous things are sent to me, or the correct title is not added, your email address could be flagged as spam and blocked indefinitely because I don't know who's who. I receive so many emails in one day, the great amount of it is, is, is refuse, that I don't know who's who. So if nothing's in the address line, good Lord, there's no way for one Muslim brother to know who you are. If there is a pressing matter where the teacher must be contacted by phone, please telephone. I'm not going to say my telephone number and be recorded, but what I will say is my telephone number is in the, in the paperwork. If you desperately need to contact me, it's there. This number should not be passed out, used for debating or interrogation. I receive enough interrogation at home and on the street and from yourselves in class. I must have a rest at times and be spared further cross-examination. If any of the above occurs, the caller will be blocked and the service discontinued. Every year I debate with myself on whether or not I will get rid of my mobile phone. Do not be the catalyst that makes me decide in the affirmative. In the event that you miss a lesson, you will need to listen to whatever has been missed online once it is ready. There is no guarantee that it will be there the same week it is completed. So, if you miss something and you say, SubhanAllah, I've missed this week's particular lesson, I want to listen to it. Do not assume and do not cross-examine myself and others and say, why isn't it there? Why isn't it there? We will do the utmost that we can. Please be moderate with your believing brothers and sisters in Islam. We are not prisoners. This is not the Spanish Inquisition. Exercise care with the slaves of Allah. There are no payment plans of the like in place as was previously explained in the introductory remarks. The student must be prepared. Okay, so when you are ready to pay, when you've brought everything forward, as, for, as with every class, I myself, alhamdulillah, I don't need to take a wage. The whole point of this 
is dealing with the printing of the paperwork and the materials. That's all that you're paying for. And you can tell by what I've bought, by what I've purchased, that I am very careful. And I try to put forward the best that can be put forward in any class, in any lecture. So I myself don't benefit except from the wealth that Allah has given me and no one else's. Now, with those introductory remarks out of the way, I want to discuss what is tafsir. I want to discuss what is tafsir. <clears throat> the Arabic word tafsir or tafsirun is defined by Ibn al-Mandur in Lisan al-Arab in the following way. At-tafsiru kashful murad an al-lafd al-mushkil وتأويل رد أحد المحتملين إلى ما يطابق الظاهر. تفسير is to reveal the intent or the meaning of the statement is تفسير carries the meaning of revealing the intent of an ambiguous expression. But as for تأويل, this is taking one of the two meanings and applying it to what coincides to the outward import. This is the linguistic meaning of tafsir. In the revealed law, or the shara, the language of revealed law, which is used by the scholars, the word tafsir carries the meaning of, quote, explaining, elucidating, and bringing out the principles and meaning of the speech of Allah that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad Close quote. This is the mustalah. The, the mustalah is the lex, the, 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 what it means in revealed law. The first meaning was the lughawi meaning, which was the tafsir carrying the meaning of revealing the intent and so forth. Ibn al-Mandur mentioned that in his Lisan al-Arab volume 5, pages 63 to 64. But what we are interested in in this class of tafsir is the mustalah, the actual lexical, shar'i, revealed law meaning of what is tafsir. And it is the explaining, elucidating, and bringing out of principles and the meaning of the speech of Allah that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad That's what we're studying. When did tafsir begin? When did tafsir begin? Tafsir began with the revelation that Allah revealed to the Prophet Muhammad from the beginning. The state, this statement is not meant as hyperbole, so I'm not saying that I'm not saying this as a statement to garner favor. I'm not saying it as a statement of hyperbole where I'm just throwing out all this information. I'm saying it because from the time of the first revelation. Allah was revealing the meaning of the Qur'an to His Prophet The commentary, understanding of the Qur'an is benchmarked and vouchsafed in the Sunnah, the second revelation. This is why we cannot separate the revelator from the revelation. The revelator is the Prophet Muhammad He's the one that is saying the revelation to us. He's received it, he's saying it to us. There's no way we can separate him from the revelation and say, in these areas he's not a prophet, and in these areas he's a prophet. We cannot separate him. So the fact that his sunnah 
is the core understanding and what was given to his companions for knowing what the Qur'an means, is the, it's the very essence of all of what we're here today for. So when Aisha as-Siddiqah, our mother radiallahu anha, was asked, what were his manners like? She said, his manners were the Qur'an. Now that hadith in the Jami' al-Sahih from Bukhari shows us then that all of what he did was by revelation. It was by revelation. So it should be understood that his coming and receiving revelation was also explained to him at the same moment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to us, لَا تُحَرِّكْ بِهِ لِسَانَكَ لِتَعْجَلَ بِهِ Do not move your tongue with haste when reciting it. إِنَّا عَلَيْنَا جَمْعَهُ وَقُرْآنَ It is for us to collect it and spread it around. فَإِذَا قَرَأْنَاهُ فَاتَّبِعْ قُرْآنَ So when we have revealed it, follow the recital being given. ثُمَّ إِنَّا عَلَيْنَا بَيَانَهُ so it is it so then it is indeed for us to explain it. Surah Al-Qiyamah the 75th surah ayat 16 through 19. So we see from the very beginning that Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealing the meaning of revelation. These are what these verses mean. These are what these ayat mean. This is their application. This is how it is to be recited. Even how it was to be recited the tajweed of the Qur'an that makes you recite it, iyaka na'budu, instead of iyaka na'budu, was revealed. All of this was revealed. Tajweed was revealed with the Qur'an. If someone is reciting the Qur'an without tajweed, Imams Muhammad al-Jazari and others are clear that that person is not properly reading the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an's tajweed is part of its tanzil, it's part of its revelation. It's part of it. Shortly after the death of the Prophet Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was chosen by the companions to be the first successor. Followed by Umar ibn al-Khattab, also known as al-Farooq. The 124,000 or more companions emptied out of Arabia in droves, some being dispatched by Umar al-Farooq to some of the 4,000 or more newly built cities that he had designed. Companions taught, lectured, trained students and scholars in established cities such as Medina and Mecca, but also newly built cities, the most significant being al-Basra in today's Iraq. Now, much of this is the same as what we discussed in Sirah. The reason being is the companions were involved in all of this. They were the first ulama that had been spoken to by the Prophet ﷺ. These ulama included people such as Jafar al-Sadiq, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Umar al-Farooq, Uthman al-Nurayn, Ali al-Murtada al-Qadi, Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, Abu Ubaid ibn al-Jarrah, and many others. Not all of the companions were ulama. Not all of the companions were ulama. Most of the companions were laymen. They knew their fard things, what was fard and what was wajib, what was sunnah for them. But the vast majority of the companions were not ulama. And even when you start talking about mujtahids, and absolute mujtahids, that was even a smaller sliver. 
And so these people, these ulama, the companions as a whole moved out, but in particular, the leaders of these new built cities were the scholars of the companions that had been told to go to a particular location. You are to go to this city and be the leader. You are to go to this city. So Abdullah bin Mas'ud, Sayyiduna, radiallahu an, ibn Ummi Abd, he was sent to Al-Kufa as a judge there, along with thousands of other companions. And when he went there, there were between uh, three and 10,000 companions in Al-Kufa. And it is from Al-Kufa that the companions and the Tabi'een codified their fiqh, which was later elucidated and explained by Imam Nu'man and Nu'man ibn Thabit al-Kufi, better known as Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. So al-Kufa's fiqh of the companions and the Tabi'een, the Hanafi fiqh, its source is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and between three and 10,000 other companions. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah is merely the collector an elucidator. The second city is Al-Basra. Al-Basra was built in fulfillment of a prophecy of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he said, يَنزِلُ النَّاسُ مِنْ أُمَّتِي بِغَائِطٍ يُسَمُّونَهُ الْبَصْرَ The people from my ummah will come down to a low-lying area and name it Al-Basra. This is collected by Imam Abu Dawood in his Sunan under Kitab al Fitin, under the chapter of mentioning Basra. So, this was a fulfilled hadith of the Prophet. Now, Omar, he commissioned, designed, and excavated this place. Omar al Farooq, the second Khalifa, gave specific instructions that this city must be built in a place that was never a permanent home to idols. This must be some place where idols were not worshipped. For some reason, he wanted Al-Basra to be special. After digging deep and in all directions, it was found that the land, the land fit the edict. And construction began in 15 AH and ended in 16 or 17 AH. This is roughly between years 637 to 639 on the Kafir calendar. Now, shortly after, the order to populate it was delivered people began to come to the new location. Teachers, soldiers, people of merit and standing were sent with the sole purpose of passing on knowledge. So if you look at how the people were teaching these sciences, tafsir, sirah, fiqh, there were people that were appointed and put in charge. Some of the chaos that we see now today is because those people aren't taking or those people aren't being put in the position where they should be. You have laymen telling the scholars what they're going to do and how they're going to teach it, rather than being in the front row of those sitting down and listening. And that's why some of the chaos that we see in our midst is occurring. Now, those that were sent with the sole purpose of passing on knowledge included senior companions, such as Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, he is the ancestor of another great scholar of the Ummah, Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. So senior companions like Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Utbah ibn Ghazwan, and others. These were in turn succeeded 
by other students like Jabir ibn Zaid, Muhammad ibn Sirin, and his sister Hafsa, Al-Hasan al-Basri, Rabi al-Adawiyah, Qatada ibn Da'imah, Abu Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani, Amr ibn Abdul Qais, Muslim ibn Yasir, and others who focused on creed and fiqh. So when you're looking at these companions, Utbah ibn Ghazwan was one of, in some accounts, the first ten Muslims, and in some accounts one of the first seven. So he was a famous companion. And these were scholarly people. So when they taught the Tabi'een, you had Muhammad ibn Sirin and his sister Hafsa, who some ulama of history say that Hafsa was more knowledgeable than him. Hafsa was more knowledgeable than him in all the other sciences, in the sciences of Sharia, because her hifaz was, was believed to be stronger than his. You had Al-Hasan al-Basri, the student of Imam Ali, radiallahu He He was made qadi by Ali himself when he tied his amama, his black amama with his own strip and told him to give rulings. And Al-Hasan passed down this practice until a young man with a brown beard, with brown skin, very tall, with a big build, had the same thing done to him. And this was Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. It's the same practice, all the way down, the early generations, has been given to us on how knowledge is conferred. Knowledge is conferred through people. And people were taught these manners. You had Rabi al-Adawiyah, Qatada ibn Da'ima, the amazing historian, and Abu Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani. You also have other historians, like Muhammad ibn Sa'ad, Khalifa ibn Khayyat al-Layfi, and they paved the way for codifying the Sirah and Tafsir literature simultaneously by streamlining the subjects and giving them chapter headings to make for easy reading. Now here's an important point. In the time of the early generations, all of these 18 sciences of Sharia existed, but they used to often be held under one heading and they would all be under one book. So then what would happen is one of the ulama, he would decide to write a book discussing that subject on its own to the exclusion of all other subjects. And this is where you would find these very elaborate books that dealt with the topic where they tried to focus on the topic by itself. Like for example, Tajweed was Imam, was Imam Al-Khatib, Rahimullah, who actually wrote a book about Tajweed itself. Previously, Tajweed was not taught by itself. You learned Tajweed when you memorized Quran, when you learned Tafsir, and when you learned Fiqh, because it was necessary to know it in order to know how to pray Salah, how to, uh, to say the Tashahud properly and other things. You had to know Tajweed. And so what happened though is some of the ulama began to uh, take these sciences and to write books that exclusively dealt with that science for latter generations who might not be able to gather all of the information under one dome and to then discuss it in all one sitting. This is so the scholars were thinking of us when they did this, the early generations. They were thinking there's going to be one brother that comes down the line and maybe he knows about tafsir, maybe he knows about fiqh, but he needs to know about tajweed. And that's all he wants to really deal with. 
So we're going to write a book that deals with this topic. Within the seerah of Ibn Hisham, those that have taken the seerah class can see there's a huge amount of tafsir in there. And it's seerah. Why? Because a lot of the scholars in that time had not separated seerah and tafsir as separate sciences. They were held as one continuous, contiguous whole. But then in the third age, the latter part of the third age, you started to find people like Imam Ahmed writing a specific book on tafsir of the Qur'an by itself. Just dealing with a book of tafsir by itself without discussing seerah. Right? None of this would have been possible without the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Whether they were sent on a permanent basis or merely just to visit and teach, the number of teaching companions assigned to Basra was between three and 10,000, including no less than Aisha as-Siddiqa, our mother, anha, Al-Hasan, Al-Hussein, Ali ibn Abi Talib, <coughs> and a galaxy of other great companions. The life that the Prophet Muhammad spent with his wives gave us snapshots of his personal life, domestic mannerisms, and things that could only be known by women. The other companions that focused on the things done in public recorded matters diligently and put them into practice. Whether it was the way he spoke, his eating manners, or even instructions about the use of the toilet, all was recorded. So you had companions like Abdullah ibn Umar who since coming into the presence of the Prophet used to even gesture like him. He changed the inflection of his voice so it was like his. He wore his clothes like his. To the point to where once he was riding through Medina and he stopped his camel suddenly and got off. And someone said to him, why did you do that? And he said, I saw the Prophet ﷺ do it. So I wanted to do it. This is the character that the companions had. This is what they were focusing upon. The public and private practice, everything that he'd done was recorded. The wives recorded the personal details that couldn't be known by men off. The personal details, some of them which included uh, visiting the toilet, or sexual intercourse, or husband and wife relations, and how to deal with these matters, they recorded these things. Because a prophet's life is not private property. Because a prophet is a teacher to the entire nation. And so they recorded these matters. The companions broke down everything. The eating manners, how he ate, the fact that he ate, when he did eat with his hands, he used his thumb his index and his middle finger for picking things up from the right hand off the plate. Not the whole hand. This is like a bear grabbing things. He used his thumb, his index, and his middle finger. And he would eat, taking things off of the plate. Like this. In that fashion. And companions preserved this. And they looked into it. One companion said of himself once in a hadith in Sahih al-Jami'ah, that my hand used to rove and roam the plate in reckless abandon until the Prophet ﷺ told me one day, say Bismillah and eat what's near to you from your right. 
Whereas before then, he would be taking pieces from someone else's part of the plate, his own plate, perhaps using both hands, not even really eating food, sort of grasping it. So we had to be shown that you don't inhale food, that food is to be eaten. How do you use your hand to eat food? How do you make wudu? It's been preserved. For example, the hadith of Uthman عن, in the uh, Sunan of Ibn Majah, in which the Prophet ﷺ was with Uthman, and he showed him the wudu, in which he did every aspect of wudu once. And he said, well, he did every aspect of wudu three times. And he said, this is the wudu of my ummah. And then he did the wudu and washing over every part twice. And he said, this is the wudu of the umam, the nations before me. And then he did the wudu in which he washed everything only one time. And he said, this is the wudu in which no worship will be accepted without it. So here we find we're being shown the sunan. We're being shown the farb, the wajib and the sunan. We're being shown them. He وسلم, is teaching us comprehensively. And the companions are there, either memorizing or writing it down. Remember Uthman ibn Affan learned the Qur'an how? By, by standing behind the Prophet وسلم, and listening to it. It's not as we had sat down, reading from the Mus'haf. He learned it by actually standing behind him and listening to it. And over the course of a year, here in the Qur'an, he memorized the speech of Allah. That's how he did it. He's what you call an audio learner. An audio learner. Prophecies, important dates in history, including the reset of the lunar calendar, were all things taken seriously. So when the lunar calendar was reset, by Omar, there was a discussion regarding it. Where do we start from? What year do we start from? What month do we start from? What day do we start it on? Where do we start the calendar from? Some companions said, well, start it from when the Prophet ﷺ was born. And some said, no. Some of the ulama said, no. And he said, then we'll start it from when he died. And some of the companions were angry. They said, why would you start it from there? Wouldn't do that. And then some said, let's start from the hijrah. And Umar who agreed. And they said, we'll start dating the calendar from the date of the hijrah. First of Muharram, first year of Hijrah, we shall start from there. So, passing on of incidents as eyewitnesses to revelation makes their witness all that more compelling and reputable. And this is an important thing. There are three ways of evaluating evidence. And I've said this before and I think it's important to say it again. There are three ways of evaluating evidence. Primary, Secondary and tertiary. The first form of evidence in discussing history or world events is primary data or primary evidence. This is by people who were actually there for those events. They are given the prime place in knowing about a particular historical event, utterance, or incident. The second in value are the secondary sources. These are people that knew the primary people. They knew the primary people. And so their veracity is judged 
on who they knew for the primary evidence. And the third and least of the proofs is tertiary evidence. This is someone who is the third in the link that knew the second one, which is the secondary evidence. And that person is judged the most rigidly because they're the most likely to slip because there's no one to correct them because they're after the events. So if someone was to talk about someone in this room, the eyewitness that would have the most knowledge of them would be the wife, the husband, the mother, the father. I would come somewhere down on the list, near the bottom perhaps. I'd probably be the third form canon of evidence because I don't know you well enough to say this is what this person is like. And so this is why it's important that the companions noted down all this information. Before moving on, it's very interesting that the main people that preserved this dean and recorded it and wrote it down were the staunchest enemies to this dean until the end. And that's something that's one of the mu'ajiz, one of the miracles of Islam, is everyone expects that, of course, Abu Bakr would believe and he'd write down what he believed in the truth of Islam. But what about Abu Sufyan? What about Muawiyah? They were bankrupted when Islam came to Mecca and destroyed the idolatry and the interest. And these people were the primary carriers of Islam outside of Arabia. These people have been enemies of Allah moments before. And now they were preserving the deen. So it's one of the miracles of Islam. The step of actually writing down tafsir alone was began at the same time that Sirah was written down. Early pioneers included Abban, the son of Uthman ibn Affan, Al-Zubayr ibn al-Awam, and his son Urwa, Abu Huraira, ibn Abbas, and Anas ibn Malik, just to name a few of the names. Other companions often recounted specific episodes such as war, end-time prophecy, theology, but the aforementioned took the holistic approach. As Sirah branched into its own separate discipline, so too did tafsir in this time in which the importance of recording the language of Qur'an and the Sunnah, the reasons for revelation and application of its judgments became paramount. The first person who we have written down that systematically did this was our Sayyid, Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Abbas This book is one of the most important. This is Tanwir al-Maqbas min Tafsir ibn Abbas. This is Ibn Abbas's Tafsir. This is a 1200-year-old, well, 1300-year-old Tafsir. There are copies of this in Berlin, in Baghdad. And for those that want to do a little bit of research, they should know that this tafsir was handed down and we know the veracity of it because Imam Ahmed used to quote from it in huge sections of his own tafsir and the portions that he's, he's quoted I've checked them with this and they coincide Imam Ahmed also mentioned there being copies in Egypt when he visited Egypt so we can see that this book was known because some people will try to cast doubt upon the veracity of this tafsir. But Ahmed knew about it, had copies of the manuscripts. And so this is the earliest tafsir in which you will look inside of this 
and you will see the perspective ayat on the top and then the commentary on the ayat on the bottom. Ibn Abbas does not go into the fiqh, he does not go into those things. Solely Ibn Abbas is giving why the verse was revealed, what it means and how it is applied. It is one large volume. Where did he get this from? Ibn Abbas went through the whole Qur'an with the Prophet three times. So you are looking at the distillation of all of this knowledge. He is one of the sources for the Shafi'i school, Ibn Abbas. So this is the earliest specimen that we have to examine what tafsir looked like. The earliest specimen. The followers of the companions wrote down the words with great care, checking dates, crucial events, second opinions from other eyewitnesses, not to mention the etymology of certain words that were fast losing usage as, as the Arabic language became diffused among non-native speakers. So as the Muslims spread out, the Arabic language become, became diffused because non-Arabic speakers began to take on the language and words began to lose their meaning because non-Arabs were now speaking the language and not enunciating the language properly. So they began to record the Arabic language. Please remember, in the beginning, in the times of the companions and the early tabi'een, in the mushafs of the Qur'an, in the collected pages of the sunnah, there were no consonantal markings. There was no way you could have known the difference between a kha, a ha, and a jeem, unless you were an Arab. If you look at manuscripts today in Arabic, any manuscript is pretty much written out like that. If you want to read Imam Wafiquddin, Ibn Qudama yourself, or Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani yourself, his manuscripts, his own handwriting, you will nearly have to become an Arab in order to do so. Because these people wrote without, con never mind the vowelings, the Fatha, Dhamma, and Kasra, they wrote without consonantal markings. So you would have to know what these words meant. So people used to approach Ibn Abbas regarding the Mus'haf and say, and famously, in, uh, there's the uh, historical incident in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, in which someone said to Ibn Abbas, is it Hal min muddakir or Hal min muddakir? He said, no, 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 it's Hal min muddakir. Okay. And they went. That's how it was because non-Arabs were coming. They couldn't understand the Mus'haf. And then there were different ways that certain ayat in the Qur'an could be read. Right? So those of you here that have read Fatiha all your life. Maliki Yawmiddin. You've read that all your life. But in the Mus'hafs 
of Ali, Uthman, and thousands of other companions. Maliki Yawmiddin. There's no Alif. There's no Alif. In fact, in all the Mus'hafs that Uthman sent out to the major centers of the Muslim world, there's no Alif in Maliki Yawmiddin. There's no Alif. Now, both of these were recited by the Prophet ﷺ. They both were. They were both revealed. But to keep situations from happening, the companions had to explain when certain ayats were recited. They had to explain it. لا تسمعوا فيها لاغية You shall not hear in there, in the paradise, any false words. لا تسمعوا فيها لاغية No false words will be heard therein. لا تسمعوا لا تسمعوا Both valid. والضحاء The daybreak. والضحاء The daybreak. التورات The Torah. التورات Speech of Allah. It's all the speech of Allah. But these slight differences. عليهم عليهم These differences. If there's anyone that's been to North Africa and has heard the Qira' in North Africa, you will immediately know that this is not what we may have grown up with in such and such country. But it's the speech of Allah. It's the different ways that it has been given. And the companions recorded this to make sure. You will find in this commentary of Ibn Abbas that he also counts the number of letters in each surah, the number of words in each surah, the number of ayat in each surah. We actually can count down all 6,236 ayat, all 97,173 words, and all the 323,000 and so forth letters. People don't even know how many words are in the Constitution of the United States and people follow it. We know everything about this book that Allah has revealed to us that he wanted us to know. It's important. So in the students of the students, the tabi'een, commentaries on the Qur'an and then the sunnah began to appear. So you start to find tafsir literature appearing by itself. No longer are you finding sirah with it. Tafsir literature is appearing unique and by itself. Where you're finding just the ayats being discussed with either reference to the sunnah or what have you, but these ayats are being dealt with purely by themselves. Ibn Abbas, Wahab ibn Munabbih, and his brother Hammam, Ka'ab ibn al-Ahbar, Abdullah ibn Salam, our mother Aisha as-Siddiqah, and legions more made it a point not just to preserve the Arabic, but the order in which the Qur'an should be read, the ways in which some passages can be read, and the major scholars of the Qur'an. So it was made a point by the companions and their students what these ayat meant, the application in Arabic, and how they could be read. Like for example, when an ayah ends with a ta it is pronounced with a ha sound. This is something that's taught. 
This is something that's taught. And sometimes you'll see the word Rahmah and you pronounce it Rahmah. But at other times you see it and you pronounce it Rahmat. And you have to know when it's supposed to be read in those ways. When it's supposed to be explained. When you have an Alif that's Mahmuz, when there's a Hamza. As-sama. Three. Or between three and six. Right? You have to know how these things are to be recited when they're given. Because the Qur'an came like this. That's why it was so powerful. Because the Qur'an was recited with its tajweed. And so people preserved these things, and they preserved the Arabic of the Qur'an. So it's for this reason that we have so much information about the Qur'an. There is no book in history that has been studied and examined so much. And those aren't just my words. Those are the words of the Encyclopedia Americana, page 494, under the chapter on the Qur'an. There's no book in history that's been as studied as the Qur'an. Every time you turn around, they're stumbling across uh, old copies of Mus'hafs, old personal copies that people wrote down for their libraries. Because the Qur'an is coming from mouth to ear. It's coming from mouth to heart. So when you're learning things from the ulama or from the sheikhs or from the teachers, they're teaching you memory. They don't always depend on the book. And so when people are listening to your qira'ah, sometimes you'll see men in a room or people in a room gathered around and they're listening to a young man recite Qur'an and they don't even have their mushafs open. Because it's not about just the pages itself. It's about what's been put in the heart as well. And so that's why before mushafs will go out to the world, they're always checked over by hufad to read them through and then listen to them and to make sure that the noon is elongated in the way it's supposed to be and how it's not supposed to be and is the alif, does it have a medda on it in walladali, does it have all, they're looking at all these areas, all these issues. The tahzib of the Qur'an, where sometimes you can recite the whole Qur'an in three days. There's markers in the mushaf for that. You can recite the whole Qur'an in seven days. There's markers in the Mus'haf. The whole Qur'an in 30 days. Markers in the Mus'haf. The whole Qur'an in 60 days. Why? Because the Prophet said so. His most famous incident was to make khatam of the Qur'an every seven days. That's the most famous statement. And that's why Anas ibn Malik, it's mentioned about him what in the Musnad? It's mentioned about him what? That he, whenever he used to complete the Mus'haf, at the end of the week, he would do khatam of the Qur'an and gather his family around food. It's something that we can see traces of it in the community here. But it should be reinvigorated and brought back to life. Because it keeps the Qur'an, the Qur'an is a living speech. That's why the Qur'an is not uh, called just Al-Kitab, just the book. It is a book. But primarily this revelation is called Qur'an, the recital. It's read. It's recited. So a Christian will come to you and say, yes, the Bible's been translated into over 2,300 and such and such languages. Yeah, but who's reading the thing? No one. That's why no one understands it. The Quran is only in a handful or so. Who's reading it? Everybody. Everybody's got copies of it. Urdu, Afrikaans, French. But the point is, everyone's reading it. 
You gather two Christians in a room, you get five opinions. One book in front of them. What's going on here? This is the situation. So the speech of Allah has been preserved. Now there are different types of tafsir. When we're talking about tafsir in this class, there are different types of tafsir. So I don't want someone to think, oh, the tafsir that we're doing, it's uniform and there's only one type of tafsir. I've chosen the particular author and the type of tafsir that we're doing for a reason. And I hope, inshallah, that at the end of this first class, you'll understand why. Now, there may be a slight overlap, but these are general statements. The following types of tafsir are self-explanatory. Self-explanatory. The Qur'an is explained by referring only to other verses of the Qur'an with minimal reference to the sunnah. The purpose of such a tafsir is to assist the student in understanding themes and rare words found only in select passages that clarify each other. Adwa'ul bayan fi idah al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an by Imam Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti is a classic example of this particular type. Imam al-Shanqiti, while citing fiqh rulings, references to the hadith literature, creedal foundations, and his rulings on current events, makes his main objective to introduce the reader to the language of revelation and the perfections within the pages of the speech of Allah. This is volume one of Adwa' al-Bayan fi idah al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an by Imam Muhammad al-Amin ibn, ibn Muhammad Mukhtar al-Jakani al-Jakani al-Shanqiti. Shanqit is just the word that, the, the original word used for what people are calling Mauritania now. This book, this tafsir is, some printing houses have it at 11 volumes, some have it at 19, it depends on the size of the font and the printing and so on and so forth. But this book, this alim, is coming from a long line of ulama from Mauritania. Mauritania has a history of producing these type of people. And this work, you'll look within it when it was first, because it was given to me as a gift by a Muslim brother from Lebanon. And he said to me, because him and I, we always used to listen, although he died in 1971, we used to sit and listen to Imam Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti's durus. Because his durus rhymed. And as he spoke his durus, it sounded like he was reciting, uh, like he's reciting a nasheed. This is how they, the Mauritanians, some of them do their durus. So we used to listen to his durus, and it became easy for us to memorize them because he would say, And he would just say these things, and he would move with such speed, and he would flow, and he would quote a hadith. And then he would stop at a point when it was at the end of a particular text or what have you. He missed, memorized hundreds of texts. Hundreds of them. And this tafsir of his is designed for you when you find words in the Qur'an, like wherever the word, uh, for example, wherever the word qari'ah uh, has occurred. He gathers it all together, discusses the Arabic of what that word qari'ah means, and if there's any references to it in the sunnah. Right? Where the word ghashia occurs. He gathers everything together and he discusses it. And then he tells you, this is what this Arabic word means. And this is its application 
where there's certain flourishes in the Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, uses language that the scholars describe as majaz or metaphorical. He gathers all of them together and he discusses it with you. It's a remarkable tafsir if you just want to totally study the Quran without going too deep into the Sunnah. I just want to look at the Arabic of the Quran. Muhammad al Amin al Shanqiti's text, Adwa al Bayan, the illumination of the speech, is an awesome text. And it's a, it's a reminder to us of how great the Mauritanians are. I, I've said it numerous times and I say it again. Those are some of the greatest scholars on the planet, the Mauritanians. In terms of their hifl, their faham, their understanding, and their itqan. They're incredible scholars. I remember there was a dear Muslim brother to, to me that went to Mauritania, or Shanqit, and they were talking to the brother, and they mentioned some books that he'd heard of, and, he's, and they'd heard of the same book. And he said, oh, have you memorized it? And he said, oh, yes. And they started testing him and asking him questions on it. He didn't know that they were going to do this. Oh, subhanAllah, they're always, yes, you've, oh, you've memorized, what, what books have you studied? Oh, I've studied Tahawi. Oh, you've studied Tahawi's Bayan Sunnah? Yes. Oh, recite it to us. Bismillah. And all of a sudden, he's, he's going, oh, I haven't practiced, I haven't, oh, it's okay, it's in your heart, it won't matter. And he was completely just taken aback. Because these are people that are used to going off of the heart. When they hear that you've recited something, you've memorized something, that means it's, it's, it's pulverized into your chest. Right? And so when you deal with teachers like that from Mauritania or, or Shanqit, they're used to that style. So when Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti arrives in the Hijaz in 1949, they said that many of the scholars had never seen anything like him. It was remarkable how he came. And they gave him a set of books to memorize and he finished them over about five months. And these were big sets of books, four volumes each memorized them and he was reciting them back off the top of his head and he was his head was moving back and forth and he was rocking back and forth reciting the books this man was in his 40s or 50s by that time he's still memorizing books like he's you know he's quite young but it just shows it's not the brain that gets old it's the false ideas that get old so people tell themselves oh, i can't do it i'm old no he came there in his 40s so this is the thing it's an amazing tafsir the second type of tafsir is what's called the interlinear. The interlinear. A reader of an interlinear tafsir will find that the author of the work has gathered not just the verses, but also all the ahadith on the subject, strong, fair, weak, and fabricated, and then sifts through them, clarifying the sound from the suspect, the baseless from the well-established, the reasons for revelation, asbabun nuzul, from the incidents of recitation, waqia. Now, this includes books like the Mammoth Jami'ul Bayan with Ta'wil by Imam Abu Jafar at Tabri. Imam Abu Jafar, Muhammad ibn Jarir at Tabri, wrote this mammoth book. Some people put it at 30 volumes because it depends again on printing houses. Sometimes it's 22, sometimes it's 20. That is the biggest tafsir of the first three generations I've ever seen. Maybe it's not the only one. Maybe there are some manuscripts we don't know about, but it is huge. And so when he goes through the tafsir on certain ayat, 
He will spend pages and pages and pages. He will quote everything. Weak, strong, fabricated, fair. And, this, and you have to read Tabari carefully. Because after Tabari does all of that, Imam Tabari rahimahullah, after he does all of that, then he starts to tell you. Now, here are the following reports that you can't take from. And he will begin to list the reports that you can't take from. Then he will say, these are fair, but they can only be strengthened by other authentic reports. And then finally he quotes the authentic, and then after that he gives his ruling. You will notice that this is also a habit of the Shafi'i scholars, which makes sense because Imam al-Tabari is a Shafi'i. Makes perfect sense. So they will discuss the well-established points, what's baseless, and asbabun nuzul. Asbabun nuzul means the reasons for revelation. That means the reason why something was revealed. So often things happened to the Prophet ﷺ. Something would happen to him. Or someone would ask him a question. Or some incident would arise. And then he would receive revelation from Allah on a particular topic. And then the waqi'ah is the incident of revelation. Or incident of recitation. Now this is a difference that I just want to clarify very quickly. The reason for revelation only happens one time. But the waqi'ah can happen several times. Here's how. Some of the Bedouin Arabs came to the Prophet Muhammad one day and they said to him, what is the lineage of Allah? We know our lineage. And they began reciting who their fathers and grandfathers. What is the lineage of Allah? How is it that he is who he is? What is his lineage? What is his pedigree? And so... Allah revealed the asbab al-nuzul is قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ All the way to the end. This is why it was revealed. But there were other times when he was in Medina where Jews and Christians would come to him and ask him questions and he would answer with this same surah. That's the waqi'ah. So the reason why it was revealed may be different to the waqi'ah. So sometimes you'll be reading in a tafsir book, but wait a minute, such and such says that he recited it on this day. Yes, but just because he recited it on that day or on a, a number of days doesn't mean there's a contradiction. It just means that that was the answer Allah told him to give on those occasions. The reason why it was revealed may have been on a different day. So I want to make sure that that's clear. So sometimes you'll have the reason for revelation. The reason for Sultan Ikhlas's revelation was the question by the Bedouin Arabs. But he answered on different occasions using that surah by Allah's command when the Jews asked him other questions, the Christians asked him other questions. Right. There's the summary of the Jami'ul Bayan. The summary of the Jami'ul Bayan is Tafsir al Quran al Aziz. This is by Imam Abu al Fida Ismail ibn Kathir. Right? It normally appears in four volumes in big print in Arabic, but this is the small print and it's one massive volume. It was, this text received a vivisection from Daru Salam publications, Wal-Iyadu Billah, and the text was dissected and received a huge vivisection in which you cannot tell where King Fahad begins and where Ibn Kathir ends and where the 
uh, beasts, and I use the word advisedly out of respect for beasts, where those beasts have done their editing. So they've distorted, and they tell you on the front, but they use very soft and emotive language. It's like being told that you have cancer. They say instead you have a small lump on your back. They don't tell you it's cancer. It's very emotive language. This is a full abridgment of the Tefsir of Ibn Kathir. Full abridgment. Does that mean that all of it's not there? Yes. Surah Al-Ma'idah, the fifth surah, ayah 15. There has come to you from Allah light and a manifest book. I wonder what Ibn Kathir's commentary is on what the light is. Because every other commentary says under Nur, Ya'ni Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You look under Ibn Kathir, you can't find it. What have they done with it? We've got the Arabic right here. Open it up. Oh, look, there's four pages of commentary proving that he is. The light referred to in that passage. I wonder what they've done to it in the English. Maybe they forgot. Geniuses that they are. No. Ibn Kathir, remember, is a summary of Imam al-Tabari. What method is Imam Ibn Kathir? Shafi'i. So he's going to adopt the same principles, which is what? Quoting everything on a particular topic. Every single thing. Baseless, strong, authentic. And then after all of that, he then lays out his case discusses everything, wraps everything up. And this is what is called an interlinear. So for people who want to understand what a hadith are connected to this particular verse, you go to Ibn Kathir. For people who just are looking for, looking at the Quran itself, you go to Imam al-Shanqiti. There is a place where you can actually look at this which is uncorrupted and it hasn't been vivisected. You may care to write it down. It is tafsir.com. It is al-tafsir, A-L, then tafsir.com. Al-tafsir.com. There are over 200 commentaries of the Quran on there. Massive. Huge. Al-tafsir.com. Huge. You'll find stuff in there, Arabic, English. They've, they've really put in a lot of work on that website. That's why I always like to mention them frequently. So you'll find the Tafsir of Ibn Kathir and the curious, scintillating brilliance that you have in your young minds. You'll type in Surah Al-Ma'idah, the fifth surah of 15, and you'll hit the jackpot. Ah, here it is. And in your scintillating brilliance, you'll be able to read it and know that what I've said was the truth. There is another text that is similar to this. Lubabu Ta'wil fi Ma'alim al-Tanzil. This is by Imam al-Hussein al-Baghawi. This is one of the great Afghani Shafi'is. Remember what I mentioned that originally the Afghanis were headed in the direction of becoming Shafi'is. I mentioned this in the history class. When the Hanafis in Central Asia became stronger and really they, they really impressed their fiqh upon them, they were impressed by this, and it led to a mass conversion in the Hanafi school. You'll find a lot of the early Afghanis, up until, say, the 5th century, you find a lot of Shafi'is that were Afghanis because of that reason. Imam al-Baghawi is one of them. This commentary in big print is usually about four volumes. This is a small print edition. Again, 
he breaks down a hadith. He goes into the reasons for revelation. And he is a very careful commentator. He's one of our great ulama. He's called the Muhya Sunnah, the reviver of the Sunnah. Because he was so strong against the people of Bid'ah that he used to terrify them by his books. Very, very strong. Big heart, hardworking, one of the great men of ilm, Al Hussein al Baghawi. Another text similar to this is that I haven't mentioned in your notes is by Izzuddin Abdul Salam, Abdul Aziz ibn Abdul Salam al Sulami, the great Al Aziz ibn Abdul Salam. This is his text, it's just called Tafsir al Quran, very short. It gives you a very basic, meaty presentation of the commentary of the Qur'an. But Al-Izz ibn Abdul Salam, his commentary is based on Al-Mawirdis. So you're really getting two commentaries in one. It's really good. Again, Shafi'is. Al-Baghawi, another Shafi'i. Imam Al-Kathir, Shafi'i. Right? Imam Al-Shanqiti, Maliki. Right? Then you have prescriptive or legal commentaries. Prescriptive or legal. Right? Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi in his Ahkam al-Qur'an focuses on the principles of fiqh that are derived according to his particular madhab. In this case, the Maliki madhab. So a prescriptive or legal tafsir is when you're trying to read a tafsir to understand how certain verses are applied to the fiqh that you may follow or adhere to. So... In certain ayat of the Qur'an, the way that they are explained by a commentator and the evidences he may use are to explain a particular fiqh ruling. I will give an example. The way that scholars of tafsir that are from the school of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal would describe the opening ayat of Surah Al-Ma'idah regarding wudu. Would make the reader think, or come to the conclusion, that touching a woman with desire nullifies wudu. For a Hanafi, this would cause some complications because that's not their position. So this is why commentators that were of a particular school have written books on commentary to explain their position on a given topic throughout the Qur'an. Zakah, wudu, fasting, other issues with verses and other things. Other salient features mentioned in the prescription Prescriptive or legal work include detailing issues of consensus on the application or interpretation of a particular ayah. So the particular scholar of tafsir would say, this ayah has been mentioned in our school as meaning such and such on this particular point. However, this particular ayah, everyone's made consensus on this ayah. So the ayah, لَيْسَ كِمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ there is no thing like him. He is the all-hearing, the all-seeing. Surah Al-Shura, the 42nd Surah, Ayah 11. All the scholars are agreed. Whoever likens Allah to his creation is a kafir. And then Imam Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, in his Ahkam al-Quran, quotes Imam Malik, 
who says, whoever refers to Allah possessing a yet hand and then refers to his own hand, cut his hand off. And whoever refers to Ain, eye, sight, vision, and points to his own eye, should have his eye gouged out. So then he understands that Allah does not resemble his creation. Wow. You get all this information in Ahkam al-Qur'an, volume 3, page 1590, if memory serves me correct. That's heavy duty. That's high octane. That's high powered. But that's what you receive in those type of commentaries. Certain verses, like for example, the verse about when the uh, hypocrites mocked the Prophet wasallam. All of a sudden you enter into a discussion about what happens with, with people who make fun of the Prophet wasallam, mock him. Are they executed? What do you do about this? What do you do about that? What happens if it was a Muslim that did it? Does he apostate? What happens if it wasn't a Muslim that did it and he's in a faraway country? Do we have jurisdiction over him? All these issues come up because of prescriptive legal commentaries. And they discuss these issues. Also, there will be a stating of what is jamhur, where there's ikhtilaf, and when once one can be found. Imam ibn Atiyah in his Al-Muharr al-Wajiz fi Tafsir al-Kitab al-Aziz is another classic example of this model tafsir. One of the great Maliki scholars. One of the greatest Maliki scholars of all time. And some say the greatest Maliki scholar to have ever come out of Gharnata. What is today's Granada? Gharnata. One of the greatest Maliki scholars ever to have lived and the greatest to have come out of Gharnata. He in his book records an amazing amount of tafsirs, ikhtilafat, uh, jamhurs, and other things. I used his commentary on the flood of the Prophet Nuh alayhi salam extensively to discuss my lecture on the topic of the flood of the Prophet Nuh He records the jamhur of the ulama that the flood was global but also mentions that there are a small minority of ulama who believe it was local. So he records these things. He discusses what ulama believe about this issue or what ulama hold about that issue. He discusses all of these points. He's a very strong writer. Very, very strong. Very few people have a bad word to say about him other than some opponents that he has in fiqh issues. Because Zimaliki. But he's a very, very strong uh, scholar. There may be some things that are found, not in this work, but in other works of his, that were strong against uh, the Hanafi method, but that has to do with the fact, again, of what was going on in that time period. Because it was the 4th through 5th century where a lot of the Hanafis were in Mu'atazila, and he did not want that to come into uh, Spain. So he, was, he disparaged uh, the Hanafi scholars on some issues, but it wasn't all of them. Uh, this tafsir, it goes through a huge amount of uh, information. Again, in normal, full of printed Arabic, large font, it's about four or five volumes. But this is small print. It's just one big, thick volume. But Ibn Atiyah is very strong. Very strong. The second type is what's called expository. Expository. Imams Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti and his teacher Jalal al-Din al-Mahalli in the tafsir Jalalain. 
give very brief notes in this work, focusing primarily on commentary of a few sentences, along with the reasons for revelation being mentioned. This work is designed to be a desktop reference manual that can be read with other lengthier works, or perhaps a commentary like Al-Hashi' ala Jalalain of Imam Ahmad al-Sawi, rahimahullah, the great Egyptian Maliki scholar. One could even consult Al-Wahidi's Asbab al-Nuzul as another example of this, but there are many variations of the text that are extant. Right? So when you look at this particular type, the Jalalain, if you just want a desktop reference manual, and the Jalalain has now been brought into English, alhamdulillah, if you just want a very basic desktop reference, really basic, where you just want to have something, maybe you're writing a paper, or maybe you just are thinking over a particular verse and you want to just have a quick reference, that's the one that you use. When you want to go deep into things, like you want to study a difference of opinion about something, like for example, uh, why is it that uh, Hanbalis and Malikis say that the full head must be gone over in wudu, but the other two schools don't? It would be Ahkam al-Qur'an that you would probably consult for that because that deals with prescriptive and legal discussions and arguments on that topic. But these would deal with things that have to do with just expository things for devotional purposes. Sometimes they give you spiritual, like Imam al-Siyuti, sometimes he'll just give you a spiritual thing instead, a spiritual nugget. Like he'll say about a particular ayah that mentions the punishment of the fire. He may only discuss the meaning of the word, and he says, and this is why we should ask Allah to seek refuge in the fire. And then he says, all right, after that, I billahi min an I seek refuge in Allah for the fire. So sometimes he'll just give a spiritual nugget, right? Or he'll give something, something along those lines, because he's a suhr wurdi, this particular tariqah, right? So sometimes he'll give a nugget. Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, Imam al-Suyuti, Imam Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, uh, these people, suhr wurdi, Imam al-Nawwi, suhr wurdis. Right, very, very uh, uh, strong tariqah in that you know you had, it's mentioned from some of them that they only ate once every two days and things like this. They're very rigid about these matters. Uh, Ahmed Asawi, the great Maliki scholar, wrote a commentary over the Jalalain, which actually expands it out. So let's say you want to study the Jalalain in great detail, you do so using Sawi. Sawi is magnificent. I've read the commentary of Imam Asawi on the Jalalain. That's one of the greatest tafsirs I've ever read in my life. And I don't impress easy. I mean, Imam Asawi is a wonderful Maliki scholar. He's one of the greatest tafsirs I've ever read in life. And it's one of the greatest modern tafsirs that was written because Imam Asawi lived not long ago. It's one of the greatest ones next to Adwa al-Bayan. I mean, the, the Malikis just have a penchant for commentary. They're great commentators. They're really, really great. And they're very even-handed as well. Very, very even-handed. The best example of expository commentary and the earliest of commentators from the first three generations is Tanwir al-Maqbas by Ibn Abbas. This is an expository commentary. So if you're going on altafsir.com and you're looking at an expository, you just want a quick explanation of it, you go to it. But let's say you look at an expository edition and you say, wow, I didn't know that that meant that. I, I need more details. That's subhanAllah. Because often we have certain ideas about the speech of Allah, things that we think ayat mean that don't mean that. People that have read something and say, yeah, alhamdulillah, this means that. Actually, no, it doesn't. It means something totally different, and you're wrong, as usual. So you've got to go back to the drawing board and go check it, 
Go look, oh, subhanAllah, I didn't know this meant this. I've got to change my whole life. How am I going to do so? No one told you to, cut, to do your own tafsir and then go astray. So what are you angry for? Get it fixed, get started, get on point. And so this is what that's for. The next is what's called inclusionist. The next is called inclusionist. This particular form of tafsir joins between all the methods previously discussed, but takes each one of them briefly to give a short <laughs> summary of each principle while adhering to the rules outlined by the author of the perspective tafsir. Works of this type include Ramuz al-Kunuz by Imam ibn Rizqullah. I could not bring that. It's too big. There was no way I was going to bring it. I wanted to bring a sample of it, but it was, I'm sorry, it's too big. I don't want to bring it. It's going to stay at home. It's mass. I don't want to bring it because it's, it's too big. Even one of the volumes is like this. I mean, it's as big as my fist, one of the volumes, and it's, it's, just, it's too big. I'll just talk to you about it because I'm not going to bring it. It's, it's written by Imam Ibn Rizqullah, which originally was supposed to be inclusionist and fairly small, but he kept writing and kept writing and kept writing. And this inclusionist tafsir became so huge that only the ulama were the ones that were included. That's the only inclusion there was because it became too huge. There's another tafsir as well. That's the tafsir of Ibn Adil. Ibn Adil, rahimahullah, was around the same time of Imam Muwafiq al-Din, a little bit after his time. Ibn Rizqullah is a student of Imam Muwafiq al-Din, who's a student of Shaykh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. Ibn Adil was a student around the same time. And his is a smaller form. It's, all, it's like Rumuz al-Kunuz, but it's a bit smaller. It's a very good commentary. And then we have, by Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, his Zad al-Masir fi ilm al-Tafsir, the provision of the one who is going to be studying the knowledge of Tafsir. In the full expanded edition, it's four volumes, but it's one volume in the Arabic and small print. Right? This was designed as if you look at it in this way, this was designed to sort of give a new tool man, a new carpenter, a small box of tools. Don't give him the full set yet. Give him a small set of tools. One wrench, one hammer, basic tool belt, a couple of spanners to get moving if he needs to, maybe a socket wrench. Really basic tools. Then once he finishes that, then you bring in the the Black & Decker and all the other types of tools and all the up-to-date modern equipment and everything else. But for right now, you start him with a basic box. So this is what you would start with. Zadu Masir fi ilm tafsir And then you can go one step above. And then at one point uh, in your scintillating brilliance, which I know you have, you go to Jami'ul Bayan, the full 30 volumes. And smart as you are, you read it and then you memorize it. And Allah blesses you for that. But you would start off with something simple, right? And this is inclusionist. So you're going to get a piece of everything. You'll get some commentary, some discussion of qira', some discussion of reasons for revelation, some discussion of waqa'ah, some discussion of rulings, right? He gives you a good taste all around. So by the time you finished it, maybe when you finished, you've said, I'd like to do another inclusionist tafsir. Or maybe when you finish, you say, you know, I'd like to do a prescriptive one instead. Or when you finish, you say, I'd like to do something smaller. That was quite deep. But it gives you a taste for tafsir. Another one is by Imam Abu Abdullah Muhammad al-Qurtabi al-Jami'u al-Ahkam al-Qur'an. Again, another great Maliki scholar. A contemporary of Imam ibn al one of the greatest 
commentators again. His commentary, it covers so much theological material. It covers so many fiqh issues. It covers so many masail that were new in his time. It is... Al-Jami'u'l-Ahkam is just... I've actually... I didn't want to buy the whole thing because I didn't, I didn't need it. But I, there were sections of it that I took that were so crucial to me that I just copied them from, from my teacher's library. I had to copy them by hand at first. And then he said, okay, you can use the printer because otherwise you'll never get out of here. So I made the copies of them. And they've always been useful. Whatever topic that I, I made copies of it on the topic of um, riba, the firstness of the Prophet the infallibility of the prophets, all these other, he talks about those issues so deeply. It, it is remarkable how much emphasis and because and because of how he goes about it is really amazing. He does such a good job. It's, it's an amazing tafsir. So these are inclusionist tafsirs. Now, why is tafsir important? Why is tafsir important? If someone does not have a proper understanding of tafsir, of what the Quran's application is, what its meaning is, you are basically holding medicine without knowing how to use it. Can penicillin help you? Yes, it can kill you as well. If you apply it wrong. How does bleach work? Bleach, is, it can clean things. It can Things that are, are stained, it can be cleaned. But if you drink it, it will kill you. So it has an application. The speech of Allah has an application. I don't know how many times I can count beyond the digits on my hands and feet where someone has read something from the speech of Allah and ran with it. And several years later, as they're jogging through the race of life, they run across the proper understanding of that verse. And they have to change everything in their life because they've been running it according to their own hobby horse style of commentating on the Quran. And now they have to pay the price for it. So I mentioned it before, and I say it as a, as a very strong illustration of our Muslim brother in Boston who had nine wives. Because of his, his Pillsbury Doughboy commentary on Surah An-Nisa, the fourth Surah 3, married two, three, or four, he said, yeah, two and three is five, and five and four is nine. And that was his commentary. He'd had children, he had a whole spread out family and everything. All of a sudden, he has to change. What am I going to do? What am I going to tell all these sisters? I don't know, but you better tell them something, like talaq, because you can't have all of them. But that's what happens with your own private commentary. People have read things from the Quran and made under... Some people have read things from the Quran and tried to use the Quran against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a reason why they don't want to believe anymore. Or a reason why they say, you see... This seems like a contradiction in the Qur'an. Someone tried to use one passage against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his speech to say, well, this, these passages here, you know, they condone slavery. I stopped this humanoid and I asked him, I'm using the word human very, very generously. I said to this individual, are you aware of how many passages there are in the Qur'an that encourage or mention the manumission of slaves? 
eyes glazing over, blank expression. Let me quote them to you. Just in Jews Amma alone, there's five references to the freeing of slaves and the insistence on doing it. Well then why in Surah Al-Baqarah does it say that you're not to marry slaves because in the beginning Allah wanted to break the back of permanental slavery. So by not allowing people in the beginning to marry slaves, he was slowly phasing out and breaking slavery. And then later, when people were freed slaves, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encouraged people to marry people who were freed slaves. That's why. You see, when you read the speech of Allah without a magnifying glass, but with a shoe, obviously you're not going to get all the wisdom from it. Let's look at another example of this. Today it's been permitted for you, I'll just read the English because people tend to run with the English. Today it's been permitted to you all wholesome things, and the food of those given the book before you is permitted for you, and your food for them. It is also permitted for you to marry chaste women from the believers, and those given the book before you. This is so long as you give them their bridal gifts with chastity and not taking them as mates and wrongdoing. And whoever should disbelieve in the faith has nullified all his deeds in the hereafter shall be one of the losers. Surah Tumayyid, the fifth surah, ayah five. So then the question comes. You have Muslim brothers in the United States that I remember. And they are still there. Holding the position, look, the food of those given the, given the book before you is permitted for you and your food for them. Pronouncing the words Bismillah before biting down on a Big Mac. Our discussion quickly issued into a dispute over whether the founders of McDonald's were people of the book or not. Our colleagues failed to understand that Roy Kroc, being born in the United States, did not make him a Christian. So we continued on in the same vein, and one of these same individuals referred to marrying chaste women from the people of the book before you. He failed, I think, to understand that the chaste is referring to virginal and that they believe in their religion, and that you don't take them as girlfriends first, which is what Allah commanded in this ayah. You don't do that. You don't do this. But people have taken it. So when you say their food is permitted for you and your food for them, does that mean all their food? Can you go to the Jewish synagogue on Shabbat, on Sabbath, and have the Kiddush with them and drink them in Auschwitz wine? Says right here in this ayah, it's quite clear, uh, the things and the food of those given the book before you is permitted for you. Get started. There's already the halal pork movement in the U.S. Pork, the other white meat. It's based on this verse. So you're at your favorite friend's house, Joyce, Daniel, Beatrice, Edward, Snooky, whoever it may be, you're at their house. And they're serving ham and cheese sandwiches. Obviously, you don't want to offend anyone because, you know, Dao was all about inclusivism. So you pronounce the words Bismillah and you eat the ham and cheese sandwich. Because of this ayah? It's ridiculous. So this is what has to be understood. Someone who reads the ayah in its context... A question will come to their mind. Does this ayah mean that someone may eat pork or drink alcohol or take intoxicants prepared by Christians? Hey, they're people of the book. What's halal for them is halal for me. Is this what's intended by the permitted food? When discussing marriage, is it, is it valid for us to marry women who grew up in Christian homes? Or do they have to be fully confirmed Jews or Christians? Which people of the book? 
Orthodox Jews, conservative, reform, Mitnagdim, Haradim, which ones? Hasidim? Do they have to be fully confirmed Haridi Jews? Do they have to wear a shaitel? Like the women who wear the wigs, do they have to wear a shaitel? Do they have to wear peot like the men? Do they have to have the overcoat kaftan? Do they have to wear a strimmel? What do we mean by people of the book? As for the Christians, what Christians? Catholic? Protestant? Evangelical? Maronite? Coptic? Ethiopic? Assyrian? Which ones? What do we mean by people of the book? It is only when we go to the revelator, the Prophet Muhammad and the source of revelation, Allah, that we can know the truth. This matter would have been explained by the Prophet to his followers and then recorded and understood. Someone who distorts the meaning of the revelation without asking for guidance brings divine judgment upon himself. Allah has revealed those who pervert the truth of our signs are not hidden from us. Is the one that will be thrown into the fire better or the one that will be safe on the day of resurrection? Surah Fusilat, the 41st Surah of 40. Allah has also revealed, and the believers say, Why has not the Quran been sent down all at once? We have sent it down stage by stage, so that we strengthen your heart with it, and we brought it with gradual recitation. They will not bring you any saying, but we shall give you the truth and a better understanding. Surah Al-Furqan, the 25th Surah, Ayat 32 to 33. So this is the foundation stone of everything that we have. It's the foundation stone. Now in looking at the author, we're going to be looking at the author of this text. Zadun Masir fi ilm tafsir The provision for the one traveling or the one on the way to studying the knowledge of tafsir. Our author is the Qadi, the Alim, Shaykh al-Islam, the memorizer of Hadith, the Hafiz, the preacher al-Wa'id, the clarifier al-Mubayyan. He is Imam Abdul Rahman ibn Abi al-Hasan ibn Ali ibn Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Abdullah ibn Humada ibn Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Ja'far al-Jawzi al-Baghdadi al-Hanbali. He's also known as al-Bakri because he is a direct descendant of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Think about this amazing point for just a second. Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jalani, Rahimullah, who's Hassan Husseini is related to the Prophet وسلم, on his on both sides of his family through Al Hassan and Al Hussein. He has Imam Ibn Jawzi in his class, direct descendant of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and Imam Muwafiq al-Din and Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, both direct descendants of Umar ibn al-Khattab so in one room, you have the Prophet ﷺ, his grandsons, and the two Khalifas. In one room, just with three men sitting down. So three or four men sitting down. That's the blessing. Now, he was born in the year 513 AH in Iraq and Baghdad. The name Al-Jawzi is a reference to an area in Al-Basra. Look at the links. Everything's headed back to the companions, back to the follower, it's headed back to them. And there's a reason for that. If you look at all these men of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, these scholars, you're going to find some link 
between either the Prophet himself or some of these high-ranking companions. They're all linked somehow. Some, they're all linked. Ibn al-Jawzi studied and memorized the Qur'an before adolescence. This is before 10 years of age. And then memorized the Sihah Sitta before his 20s. So this is before he turned 20. He'd memorized Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tarmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Nisa'i. You're looking at roughly 30,000 hadith. Then he started on the Muslim, which is 30,000 by itself. And he studied with some of the greatest scholars of his time. Imams like Ibn Nasr al-Zaghuni, Al-Qadi Abu Ya'la the Younger, and the scholar with perhaps the most profound impact upon him, Imam Abdul Qadir, Ibn Musa al-Jilani, al-Hasni, al-Husseini, al-Hanbali, the great Shaykh al-Islam Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, rahimahullah. This is the very Shaykh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, who disappeared at 25 to study further, and returned at 40, and the hair on his head and in his beard was white. He's 40 years of age and his hair is white. This is the same Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani who brought so many signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's rahmah. I'll give you a story about Imam ibn al-Jawzi and Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. And I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again because sometimes we may forget or it's a good reminder. He has all the students in the class. Sheikh Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi who memorized 700,000 ahadith that left him 300,000 away from the full million. <coughs> he could have, he, mentioned, he memorized 700,000 ahadith. If Ahmed was alive, he could have sat in some of Ahmed ibn Hamdul's classes. That's how deep his memorization was. That's how deep it was. Because Hadith scholars now, someone that has memorized 100,000, if Imam Ahmed was alive, they couldn't have sat in his classes. Because his minimum bar to be considered a scholar was that you knew 400,000. Most of the Hadith scholars today couldn't have even sat in his classes. Maybe they could have given him salam, you know, coming out of the masjid and things like this. But they couldn't have sat in his classes. So Sheikh Abdul Ghani and Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi could have sat in his classes. You have Imam Muwafiq al-Din memorizing all these books. You have Ibn al-Jawzi, Abdul Rahman ibn al-Jawzi, Abu al-Faraj, Jimal al-Din. He told this class, Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalani rahimahullah told the class that they should go to the market and buy some poultry. The fowl must still be alive, the bird must still be alive. And they're to go somewhere where they will not be seen and kill it. Everyone spread out, fanned out, killed their prey, brought it back, and they began preparation for a huge banquet. And this banquet where they give out food still continues today in the slum where Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani's masjid was and is today. They still give out the food. Everyone's there except for Abdul Rahman ibn al-Jawzi. He's missing. They're wondering where he is comes close to Maghrib time and he comes in with the bird in his hands and obviously the students are jeering at him and laughing and Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jalani rahimahullah, he says to him let him explain <coughs> Imam Abdul Rahman ibn al-Jawzi says you asked us to go buy 
a bird from the market and to kill it for this banquet. To go somewhere where we would not be seen and, and slaughter that bird. I bought the bird, but then I realized there is nowhere where I could go where Allah would not see me. So I couldn't kill the bird. So I brought it back. Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jirai said, said, This is my student. Because he's thinking deeper about matters than merely words that are spoken. This is Imam Ibn Jawzi. He began the process of study. And he memorized more than 200,000 ahadith. He, by his own account, and by the account of his teachers, wrote several books in every single of the 18 sciences of the Sharia. At count, his books are 1,000 in number. He's written 1,000 books. Some say more. Most of the accounts say he wrote 1,000. He was known for his strictness in hadith, codification, and gathering. He wrote a book called Kitab al-Mawdu'at, the book regarding fabricated hadith. And he was very strict. It's one of the things that the scholars mention about him, that he was very strict. In theology, he was also very harsh. With the exception of in one area. Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, believed, because there is a difference of opinion, is a peripheral issue. The licitness of ta'wil in discussing theology concerning the names and attributes of Allah. That started a huge firestorm. Because Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani and the other ulama had already made it very clear that it mustn't be used and it's not licit. He said that it was. And when they said to him, how can you differ with your teacher? This is Shaykh al-Islam, this is who he is. He said, well, I differ with him. And people weren't ready to listen to that in Baghdad. If you differed with Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani, was this, is, this is how it was said by the ulama at that time. Whoever's creed is different to Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani, he's one of the people of Bid'ah. If you differed with him, I'm not talking fundamentals, branch issues. If you differed with him in a branch issue, people can say that you were one of the, you were one of Ahlul Bid'ah. You must be from one of the cults. That's how heavy, that's how, how high of regard Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani was held in. You couldn't say anything about the man. But Imam Jawzi, rahimahullah, said, no, I differ with him in this issue. He was arrested. The door to his house was sealed shut so he couldn't get in. And he was exiled to Walsit for about five years. He came back after those five years, said nothing further on the topic. Imam Muwafaquddinahimullah said about him because he was a classmate of Imam Ibn al-Jawzi. He said, I never found a man more knowledgeable in matters of fiqh or creed than him. He said, we just, dis we just differed with him in some of the matters that he mentioned regarding the creed. Some of the matters. 
He was a tremendous alim. His description is very fair, long brown beard, and deep set sunken brown eyes. So that when he looked at you, it was like he was looking through you. He pierced through you when he looked at you. So few people could hold his gaze. Because he had a very strong, piercing sight. Whenever he published his books, because back then, when you wanted to publish a book, you would write it out, and then you'd have copies made, written out by other people. It's before the printing press. And then you would have them put up in the mektab or the local bookstore. And people would say, oh, Imam Nujozi, he's written a new book. And there would start to be discussions over who's going to buy it first. And someone would try to buy the first copy because it would be signed. Or he would sign it with his quill. So they'd try to get the first copies. And then they'd read it. And then if there was a discussion on another topic, or he was discussing, like, for example, he and Imam Muafaquddin got into a big battle. And that was, I mean, the bookstore was empty of their books because it was so popular. Because these were two of the premier scholars because Imam Muafaquddin was shuttling back and forth to Baghdad. Imam Muafaquddin at that time was younger than Imam Ibn Jozi. And he was differing with Imam Jozi in some of the some periphery issues of creed. Imam Jozi said, my answer is simple. This man is young enough to be one of my students. Who is he to differ with me in, these, in this regard? Because Imam Ibn Jozi was well established among the ulama. Imam Rahimullah, as big as he was, he was Shaykh al-Islam, but he was still younger than him. And he was still establishing himself. So Imam Ibn Jozi said, he's young enough to be my student. Who is he to speak to me? That shows the strength, the caliber that the ulama had. And Imam Ibn Jozi did not censure him or rebuke him for that statement. But they differed on these points. And so there were books written in response to it. And one of the books written after the death of Imam Jozi was The Them with Tetwil, The Blameworthy Nature of All Tetwil. It was written by Imam Muafaquddin as an attack on all forms of interpretation and the issues of the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all for just closing the door. Imam Ibn Jozi, before he had died, he wrote the book Defa Shubat Tashbiyah, negating and pushing away. All likenesses to Allah and affirming Allah's glory and his being different to his creation. And in that book, he went against all of his teachers in this issue. Shaykh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, Ibn Nasr al-Zaghuni, Al-Qadi Abu Ya'ala the Younger, Al-Qadi Abu Ya'ala the Elder. Al-Qadi Abu Ya'ala the Elder is the one that brought the ulama, but he differed with him. and that He got death threats for that. But that shows the ulama at his level, when they differ, they have that levity to do that. But he put himself in a lot of danger. Al-Qadi Abu Ya'la, the elder, he, he had hundreds of students. His memory was still well established and alive. His grave then as now is a meshhad. That's a place you visit when you believe your dua is going to get granted. <laughs> he's, he's not like your local village imam or the local imam that's in our city here. This is one of the ulama. When we say imam about imam al-qadi abu ya'ala, it's not with the, with the lowercase i. It's with the capital I. He's not, he's not a biologist or a local philosopher or, or anything like us. You know, we happen to, you know, work down at our local college and every now and then on the weekends he teaches a bit of Qur'an. <laughs> no, these are the ulama of the ummah. The nubala, the stars of this ummah. So, Imam Ibn Jawzi rahimahullah writes these 1,000 books. Right, writes these 1,000 books, 194 of which 
have been printed and distributed globally to date. I've already mentioned that he had some issues for some of the theological positions that he's taken. Finally, we come to his book, Zad al-Masir fi ilm tafsir In this commentary, Imam Ibn Jawzi, rahimullah, seeks to introduce the reader to the commentary of the Qur'an in a systematic yet concise fashion. Often, what Imam Ibn Jawzi, rahimullah, what he does, because he's, what, he's the type of preacher that used to preach in a very um, an affected fashion, what was called hakawati. A lot of the shamis, they still do it. Where the shaykh, he will speak on a point, and then he will raise uh, the point to its epitome, and then he will end. And he expects people, Subhanallah! Allahu Akbar! Subhanallah! Subhanallah! And people to say, Allahu Akbar! And things like this. And there was a man, he used to sit next to him. Imam Ibn Jawzi, rahimahullah, used to really love that man. And that man would always say, whenever he would finish a really important statement, he'd say, Subhanallah! And everyone in the room, Allahu Akbar! And one day that man was ill, he wasn't there. And when he saw him the following day, Imam Ibn Jawzi, rahimahullah, he said, I missed you and your salutations. <laughs> because sometimes the speaker, part of his, some speakers, it's part of their speech, how they speak, and that helps spur them on. So say Sheikh Muhammad Fuad al-Barazi, that's the way he speaks, it's Hakawati. So when he first came and he was speaking, and he's in a room and there's all these Muslim brothers that are from the Indian subcontinent, Central Asia, and it's deadpan quiet. You can't even hear grasshoppers rubbing their legs together. And he asked the translator, he said, are these people dead? What's going on here? <laughs> so the translator, he started doing it. SubhanAllah! <laughs> Just to keep the, keep the flow of the dialogue going. So to keep it alive because these Muslim brothers are thinking, what's going on here? It's not a mahfil, he's giving a dars and a hadith. He's not supposed to be saying subhanallah and yelling out loud and these type of things and, you know, and holding on to the collar of your shirt. Subhanallah! Right? Once Imam Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, rahimahullah, he gave a lecture and he finished it by saying, and the true slave of Allah, knowing himself, knows Allah and that helps to protect him against the haram. Imam al-Jawzi jumped up and said subhanallah and he tore his shirt. <laughs> and then he realized later, he said, this was one of my most expensive ones. <laughs> But this is part of that style of certain scholars, they like it quiet, certain they like it loud, certain ones they like to have crowd participation back and forth. And Imam Ibn Jawzi was one of those ones who liked particip uh, crowd participation. Finally, in ending all of this off, his lectures were attended sometimes, his weekly lectures were sometimes attended by between 50 and 100,000 people at a time. Massive masjid. Massive masjid. His durus on hadith were legendary. Legendary durus on hadith. Where few people could get next to him in hadith. His knowledge of things. He is the type of alim. Certain ulama, you, read, you can read their books and anyone can read them. Imam Ibn Jawzi is the type of scholar where if he writes a book in or writes books in a hadith, you have to read all of the books to fully understand him. Because he's, he's, he speaks in the language of the scholar. When you look at Imam Muwafiq al-Din, Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, they're able to take things, shrink it down 
for the common person and make it understandable and usable. Imam Ibn Jawzi is here and he thinks that everyone can come up the stairs and get to him. And so it takes someone else to go through other details to expose who he is to the world. So he's speaking in the language of the ulama. He's there. But he does not expect to tone his language down. He keeps it where it is. He died in 597 AH. Some reports have 596. The Imam was buried near Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimullah. He left behind three boys and three girls. And we now present to you the text, Zadul Musir fi Ilm Tafsir. Next week, I will want to start in earnest on the Tafsir. And I will want us to come together and to start to benefit one another with this Tafsir. Is there any question over our introductory remarks? I had believed that we might be able to get to it today, but the introductory remarks had to be explained in some depth. Is there any question over what we've covered today in our introductory remarks? Any question? Yes. Okay. Question is regarding what was what the issue was that Imam Ibn Jawzi differed with his teachers on regarding creed. Alhamdulillah. It had to do with the licitness of interpretation when discussing the names and attributes of Allah. I'll give you one ayah as an example. But indeed Allah has two hands outspread. Surah Al-Ma'idah, the fifth surah, is 64. Hanbali's Ahmad ibn Hanbal says, Allah has an attribute called hand. That's the end of the statement. This is literally the end of the statement. All the scholars after say, Allah has an attribute called hand. Yet, nothing. Imam Ibn Jawzi says, this is what this means. However, it could also be referring to, and this is where the battle began. And lo and behold, he was accused of sounding like an Ashadi, and that's where things started from there. Because they know, because those are the only people that advise, this man is philosophical, he sounds like an Ashadi, and persecution started. Because they're the only ones that resort to Ilm al-Kalam and other things, and he said, I didn't resort to any Ilm al-Kalam, I'm using the ayat of the Quran. No, only they use these type of words, that's it, we've got to stop him. And they immediately put the brakes on him. Yes. That's it. We just leave it. We just leave it. That, that's, that's why when you look at the ayah, there's no thing like him. Heart white clean. No suppositions, nothing. He is all hearing, all seeing. Good. So you wouldn't therefore ask after that, well, wait a minute, hold on. If he's all hearing, all seeing, that means he's got to have no, because your heart's just been wiped clean with, there's no thing like him. So if you start to say, well, Allah is like, or what about that, then obviously your heart hasn't been wiped clean with the first part of the ayah. It's got to be wiped clean with that first part, and the second part comes in. How about explaining the word hand, um, using the word hand, and then using words to explain that, as in power is this or that? That's what got Imam Ibn Jawzi in trouble, this discussion of using yed with quwa, or yed with ni'mah. 
Because the Hanabular is saying, you know, Ni'matullahi wahida. The ni'mah of Allah is one. So how can you say that Yadain in this passage means this? And then the Hanbalis, they go one further because they said, by you interpreting, because Ta'wil is taking something from one meaning to another. And the Hanabalis are saying, by doing that, you are assuming you know the meaning of this ayah. And you don't. And that's where the battle began. So Ibn al-Jawzi, after that, he wrote another book to clarify his position called Kitab Akhbaru Sifat, which was a, a, an expanded, about 300-page work to say, I, I have no problem with the imam of my school. I'm well within the parameters of my school. However, you must understand that it is licit to engage in this to a certain extent. And he described it and explained in things and uh, attempted to defend himself. But at the end result... Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, as great as he is, the ulama say, now listen, he wasn't wrong in these issues, but it would have been better if he never discussed them. And that's the position that they hold. Yes? Uh, with regard to the former ayah, with regard to uh, the hand, uh, would that be what the shah had? Yes. He's not supposed to really delve into it anyway. Question? The, the, the other ayah is muhkam, which is clear-cut. Everybody understands it. That's the... Uh, bedrock of creed. Yeah, so question is uh, the ayah, uh, but both his hands are outspread. Is that ayah not one of the mutashabihat? Alhamdulillah, yes, it is. The ulama understand. Imam Muafaquddin, Imam Qudama, rahimahullah, he says in his work, Rodatun Nadir, Wajunatun Munadir, volume 1, pages 215 to 217, if memory serves me correct, that the Ayat about the names and attributes of Allah are all mutashabihat. And the fact that at the end of Surah Ali Imran, the third Surah, Ayah 7, when Allah says, And no one knows its meaning except Allah. He says, this means that the meaning of it is veiled from the creation and our only job is to affirm, accept, and to leave the ayah as it is. Right? So this is part of what it was. So Imam Ibn Jawzi, he was uh, a maverick in his time among the Hanabi. He was a maverick because of this issue. And he was accused of, of things. He says, no, that's not what I am. He was accused of things. And that's why it happened. What is the position of Al-Ashari's um, uh, Al sort of theology in regard to the Jawzi? The, the, the question is regarding um, the position of the Ashari's regarding uh, the uh, discussion of the use of the word hand and such uh, in the ayat. Alhamdulillah. The Ash'aris would say that this passage refers to Allah's quwa. And they'll quote other passages that they, that they believe are significant uh, in proving their point. Imam Ibn al-Jawzi in his Sayyid al-Khatir goes to great lengths before this dispute even rose to attack uh, the Ash'ari position in this regard because he, his position is just for him saying that it's licit. Imam Ibn Jawzi didn't interpret. He said, it's licit to say it. He didn't even say, this is my position. He just said, it's permitted to say it. And they went after him. Whereas he says, the Ash'aris, they're actually doing it. And that must be stopped. So he's saying, although it is permitted, it still shouldn't be done, even though it's permitted. But I'm stating that it's licit. So it doesn't make someone from Ahl al-Bid'ah if they believe that it's valid. That's the point that he was making. And that's what got him in, in a lot of the trouble. 
uh, from the statements that he made with some of the other Hanbali scholars. Is there another question? So was he from the Hanbali Creed? question is, is was Imam Josie from the Hanbali Creed? Yes. Yes, alhamdulillah. Yes, he was. His books, Dafa Shubat Tashbih, is um, a book that widely can be read and understood but it must be understood in the context of the rest of Ibn al-Jawzi's books. That's why whenever Ibn al-Jawzi has a book in Creed, he's got about three to four books where he's mentioned theological statements, and you have to read all of them together to fully understand uh, Ibn al-Jawzi's positions on everything, particularly his Akhbar uh, al-Sifat. You have to read all that together, uh, because Ibn al-Jawzi is a very, very deep, um, he's a very deep man. And I think a lot of it was... Because he spoke the language of the ulama, I think a lot of the, the common people misunderstood him a lot. Because he was he was on such a level, he could not bring himself down to actually, like Imam Muafbuddin, someone could come and ask him to explain a point, and he could explain it very succinctly. But Imam Ibn al-Jawzi was, was, he was on a, a really a higher level. I mean, he said on the mimbar one day, uh, Rahimullah, he said, you come to challenge me and fight with me? 10,000 people have become Muslim at my hand? I've wrote 1,000 books with this hand, and you come to challenge me about my affairs? Don't you, don't you understand the ayah that the faqih, or don't you understand the hadith that the faqih is harsher on shaitan than a 1,000 worshippers? Who do you think you're challenging when you, you know, he was very indignant that these, these laymen are challenging him. Who do you think that you're challenging? One of us is more strong against the shaitan than a 1,000 worshippers of you. So I think it's part of the reason that because of the depth of his knowledge and where he was at, I think some of the common people couldn't relate to him. But when you read him as a student and examine him, he's a very, um, he's, he's a very powerful law writer. Very powerful. So do you know, like, in regards to, like, all, like, the, the different creeds that we have, it's like, they're, they're, they're all basically similar, aren't they? But they, is it branch issues that they, they differ off in, or is it, like, major, not major issues, but... Is this something that they can have a big disagreement? Question is uh, that the creeds of the Hanbalis, Mathuris, and Ashadis are the same in the foundations, but they differ in branch issues. Alhamdulillah. That's correct. The branch issues they differ in. The branch issues they differ in. The key is, again, no one can be compelled that they have to hold a position. If someone feels convicted by some branch issue, and they feel that that is their position, and they feel compelled by the evidence they may follow. No one can say, no, you may not do that, because it's a branch issue. So for example, if, if someone uh, holds to the position that the scales shall be brought first on the day of resurrection uh, before the weighing of deeds, or someone says that they'll drink from the pond in the paradise and before the paradise, rather than saying they'll drink from the pond before going into the paradise. It's not going to take, it doesn't affect the destination of the soul. And the ulama, no, it's got to be. And the ulama have had these big discussions and disputes, which are composed of ayat and ahadith. But if someone says, you know, I think that we're going to drink from the haud of the Prophet ﷺ before we go into paradise, and once we're in there, a'udhu billah, no, we wouldn't do this. Hasha lillah, fear Allah, I thought you were a Muslim. What is this? This is a branch issue. Everybody's fighting and, and, and putting up arms and, and coming to blows in the masjid. The brothers, subhanAllah, in Birmingham almost attained martyrdom from stating that position. Yeah, we don't do that. His brother's calling me. I can hear all this yelling in the background. I thought I was going to hear the crack of an AK-47. What is going on here? Well, because they've kept that one position. That's all there is. 
That's all there is. And if you give her in this position, you're a dead man. We've got, we've got rope and green wood stacked up outside. No, this is crazy. You have to learn to accept that there's going to be these differences. Now, we understand that people will be strict on points, but they have to accept the fact there will be differences. Is there a final question? Final question. Yes. So back in bad times, you can't mix and match. Can you mix and match within creeds? Or does that question is, is, in branch issues in creed, can one mix and match in branch issues? Alhamdulillah. Yes, you'll find one of the great Shafi'i scholars of all time, Imam al-Shaharistani, was Maturidi. He's the only Shafi'i I know that was Maturidi. It's Maturidi. Very unusual. Very, very unusual. I've only known of one Ash'ari Hanbali. One. For sure. Najmuddin al-Tufi, rahimullah, one of the students of Imam Taqiyuddin ibn Taymiyyah. He's Ash'ari. Right? So you'll find people will mix between uh, certain branches in issues where they'll adopt positions and opinions. Imam Mahmoud al-Alusi was Hanbali in his creed. He was one of the great Hanafi scholars, Imam Mahmoud al-Alusi. So it doesn't take anything away from them, but you have to also, your community that you belong to have to be cosmopolitan, and then you also have to be understanding of what they're going to do when they find out that you believe the things that you do. Because you are going to find yourself in some very interesting dinner conversations. We'll say that. Because you'll have positions that will be different. What? And when they hear it, the response is either what? Or get a rope? Or where's my gun? Or things to this effect. When, 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 when in effect, really it's a branch issue. But people have to learn. Part of this is learning to be more cosmopolitan, learning to understand each other. I've learned in the time I've been here to understand. I know all of your positions because I've studied. I've had the opportunity to study with Maturidis, Hanbis, Ashes. I know what not to go there with you on. No, I do. Because I know that you have very firmly held beliefs that it's not for me to come and say, now I have come, I've brought the truth, and it's now for you poor souls to come and just... You know, follow what I've got. I know the positions that you have, and they are well-founded positions. They're strong, evidential positions that you have. So are mine. So I ask that because I respect your positions and I respect you and love you, that you do the same thing. So I don't expect to find nooses in front of my house or anything like this because of positions I hold any more than that you'd find want to have burnt effigies in front of your house from positions that you hold. And that's part of the variety of this ummah. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Washhadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Innahu ghafur rahim. Yalhamdulillahi